So we continue on through the book of Luke in chapter 1. Zacharias is about to be filled with the Spirit and speak in regards to the birth of his son, John the Baptist, and in regards to the birth of Jesus the Messiah. Now, what is he going to talk about? He's, going to, he's not necessarily going to say the word covenant, but he's going to refer to three of the covenants that God has made with the nation of Israel. Now, a covenant is an agreement. The word, when we use the word covenant, we, um, in this day and age, it generally applies, generally, to two things. We talk about marriage, and maybe you buy land. When you buy land, you may get the deed and the covenants that go with the land. But a covenant is basically an agreement. It's generally a two-party agreement, although there may be more parties than two. But generally, two parties come to an agreement, and they make a covenant. We say, all right, if we fulfill these obligations, then I will do these things. And if you fulfill your obligations, I'll do my things. And so the two parties get together and agree that each will carry out their responsibility, and each will benefit from whatever the agreement is. So God has made three covenants. He's actually made more covenants than that, which I'll mention in just a second. But there are three covenants contained here in what Zacharias is going to say. Zacharias is going to talk about the Davidic covenant, the covenant God made with David. He's going to talk about the Abrahamic covenant. This is the order he gives them in. By the way, Abraham, of course, came first. But it's the Abrahamic covenant. And then he's going to talk about the new covenant. What's interesting about each of these covenants, they each have to do with salvation. They each have to do, they are eternal in nature. All three of these covenants are going to carry through eternity. Forever, God is going to have someone sit on the throne of David. Forever, we are going to be the descendants of Abraham. And forever, the new covenant is going to be enforced. So, Starting in verse 67, uh, John the Baptist, his father Zacharias, finally getting his voice back after nine or ten months, and has been unable to say anything. He finally gets a chance to speak, and this is what he says. He's filled with the Holy Spirit and proclaims, saying, and off we go, right? He, he pours out these covenants. Now, there are other covenants, I should mention. The Mosaic Covenant. God made the Mosaic Covenant. That is a temporary covenant. That, when we generally say the Old Covenant, that's what we're talking about, would be the Mosaic Covenant. There's also the Noahic Covenant. God made a covenant with Noah that he would never destroy the earth again with water. And there's the covenant of the priest in which all of the descendants of Phinehas would be priests. These are, these are other covenants. So what we see in this particular covenant, when he begins to speak and he begins to, to put forward here, blessed be the Lord God of Israel who has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David, his servant. The Davidic covenant allows God to put a descendant of David on the throne forever. Now, this covenant is actually given in 2 Samuel 12 through 16. God says this to David. When your days are complete and you lay down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, 
who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. He will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I'll be a father to him. He will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne will be established forever. Now, if you're David and you're listening to this, you're thinking this is an amazing agreement that God is making with me. We tend to look back historically and you think the reign of David and kings and, you know, we've all watched a million movies about kings and kingdoms and thrones and palaces and all that. Okay, you have to realize that the only king of Israel that they've ever had before David is Saul. And let's face it, Saul kind of had his own set of interesting issues. Prior to Saul, there was no kingdom. David is only the second kingdom of this kingdom. He's the second king. That's it. He's the second guy. So for him, and the, the first king is Saul. How long did he last? He didn't even last his whole lifetime. And God took the kingdom away from him. So David may very well be sitting there thinking, wow, I wonder if God is going to take away my kingdom. Like he took away Saul's kingdom. And God says to him, no, I am going to make and establish your kingdom Forever. Forever. Really? Yes. You will never lack a son to sit on the throne forever. Is God going to actually keep that promise? If you're David, you're sitting there thinking, okay, um, how is this going to work, right? I mean, there's a lot going on here. God also gives a near promise, which is that the son of David would sit on the throne immediately, which... When you look at the northern kingdom, Israel had two, the, the kingdom divided after Solomon died. And the ten northern tribes got one guy, and the two southern tribes picked a son of David. If you look at the southern tribes, through their entire history until the Babylonians haul them off, 400 years, give or take, everyone who sits on that throne is the son of David. The northern kingdoms... It's who knows who. I mean, there's so many guys that end up landing on that throne, and they come from all over the place and all, all different of the tribes, and they're not descendants of David. What, what amazing power of God to say what the future is going to be. David, your descendants are going to sit on the throne. Of course, the ultimate son of David to sit on the throne, which as we continue through the book of Luke will we'll get to, of course, is Jesus. And Jesus is the ultimate son of David who will, in fact, sit there forever. And so, this applies directly to us. We all serve King Jesus. He is the king that we hold allegiance to. So it's not just Israel. It's not just that this is a promise to Israel. This is a promise to us. This promise is going to be carried through and we will for eternity worship the son of David. And you, know, you can ask, well, particularly David and, and us, as you look at this, you think, well, what if they're disobedient? What if, what if the nation just falls away and doesn't want to serve God anymore? And what, Is God still going to, to keep that? Well, the psalmist in Psalm 89 says this, 
speaking for God. My loving kindness, I will, I will keep him. Speaking of David, this is verse 28. It's in the context is David. My loving kindness, I will keep him forever, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. So will I, I will establish his descendants forever and his throne as the days of heaven. If his sons forsake my law and do not walk in my judgments, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, I will punish their transgressions with a rod and, and their iniquities with stripes, but I will not break off my loving kindness from him, nor deal falsely in my faithfulness. My covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His descendants shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever like the moon, and the witnesses in the sky. As they are faithful, so God is faithful. This is the God we serve. This is why it's important to look at the Davidic covenant and to look at God's promise to David and to say, well, is this actually true? Did God actually fulfill this? And of course, God did fulfill it. God has placed Jesus on the throne of David. Before it all wound down, before the nation got scattered around there, God brought Jesus into the world, which is exactly what Zacharias is talking about, which is exactly what the book of Luke is about, along with Matthew and Mark and John. The, the gospel is the message that God has sent his king. God is always faithful to his word. We know for a fact that the nation did turn away from God. We, we know, we can look at it, we can read the history of it. They got to the place where like, yeah, we're not following God. But God was faithful because this covenant is God's covenant. This is an unconditional covenant. God made this covenant. God's not going to break this covenant. He says in Jeremiah about this covenant, Jeremiah 31, verse 35, Thus says the Lord who gives the sun for light by day and the fixed order of the moon and stars for light by night who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of armies, or hosts, is his name. If this fixed order departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. If the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. And this is Jeremiah. And by the time Jeremiah is writing, if you know your Old Testament history at all, by the time Jeremiah is writing, Nebuchadnezzar is knocking at the door. The, the destruction of Israel and the destruction of the temple and the temple mount and all of that is eminent. The Babylonians are going to wipe them out and drag them off. And for God to make this promise, what a great promise-keeping God. And for us today to be able to look back and, and to say, well, Israel is still a nation. In fact, not only are they a nation, they are a nation in their own land today. Why? Because God keeps his word. God is a covenant-keeping God. God made a covenant with them. Where are the Babylonians? Anybody know where the Babylonians are? I don't know. Anybody know where the Romans are? Anybody know where the Hittites are? Anybody know where the Philistines? Anybody know where these people are? I mean, there's all kinds of nations that have risen and fallen and disappeared and, and just gone off the face of the earth. What are the odds that the descendants of David would continue to be a nation? Even though they were driven and scattered throughout all the world, God has today gathered them back and put them back in the land. It is an astounding thing. Why? Because God said, well, 
you know, if, if the waves stop roaring and the sun stops shining, then I will forsake my covenant with David. And of course, those things have not stopped, and so God has not forsaken. The Davidic covenant is still there. God made this covenant with these people, and he's going to fulfill it. This is to show us, we study the Old Testament to know the character of God. So when God starts making promises to us, guess what? No matter what, God is going to keep his word. Now, if you happen to be around when Jesus is born and when when John the Baptist is born, you know, you, you, you could be forgiven, right, for thinking that surely Jesus is going to show up and rule the nations. Isn't that the moment here? Isn't that when this is going to happen? And, of course, we know the full story, and the Messiah is going to have to die before that happens. Jesus is going to come. He's going to offer himself as their king. He's going to come in on the triumphal entry, just like the Old Testament prophets said he would, lowly and seated on a donkey. They're looking for something big and great, and they'll reject him. They will reject him just as God has planned that they will reject him, but not the covenant. This covenant remains in force because it's God's covenant. God made this covenant with them. So when God starts making promises to us, Jesus came the first time. Is Jesus going to come the second time? It's tempting to kind of go, wow, I, you know, is Jesus going to finally come back? Is that? And Peter says, here's what's going to happen. The, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some people consider slowness. He's patient towards us all and doesn't desire anyone to perish, but for everyone to come to repentance. Now, some of you will understand exactly what I'm saying. I have grandkids. I want my grandkids to hear the gospel. I don't want Jesus to come back just yet. Not yet. It's okay if God delays that for just a little bit. It's okay. And God, by the way, is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Praise God, Jesus waited for us to hear the gospel, right? Praise God, Jesus didn't come back before we got a chance to hear the gospel, to realize what kind of sinners we are, and to come to God in repentance. Well, we should... Although we want Jesus to come back any day, that'd be great, of course. But the fact is, God's not in a hurry. There's a lot of people in this world who still need to hear the gospel, who have an opportunity to repent, and we should do everything we can to bring the gospel to them. So the day of the Lord, Peter goes on to say, it'll show up. And when it does, it'll be like a thief in the night. I mean, it'll be completely unexpected. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the elements will be destroyed with an intense heat, and the earth and everything in it will be burned up. And because these things are true, we should be righteous people. We should strive to recognize that everything in this world, don't sell your soul for the stuff in this world. It's all going to burn up. It's not worth it. It's, it's not worth exchanging your relationship with God in any way, for the possessions of this world. That's a bad exchange. Because everything in this world is going, to be, is going to be destroyed. And a new heaven and a new earth will be made. Invest in that one. Take the stuff of this stuff, of this world, and invest it in such a way that you lay up treasure for yourself in heaven, where moth and rust never corrupt, and thieves never break through and steal. And the new heaven and the new earth will literally last forever. So be diligent to live righteously and to do right. Why? Because the word that God gave to David is enforced to this day. 
Israel's still a nation. Jesus sits and rules on the throne of David. God is a God who keeps his word. So if God says he's going to come back, and he's going to destroy this place, and he's going to create a new heaven and a new earth, just as sure as Jesus came the first time, he will come the second time. And it may seem like it's going to take a long time, but, you know, I mean, as far as God is concerned, right, a thousand years, like a day. It's, it's not that long. A couple of days since Jesus was here, as far as God is concerned. He goes on, Zacharias goes on, to now talk about the Abrahamic covenant in verses 72, 3, 4, and 5. To show mercy to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to Abraham our fathers, to grant us that we being rescued from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. So Zacharias is trying to speak to the people around him, trying to speak to the nation, filled with the Spirit of God, and is going to start speaking about what's happened. Now, remember, for 400 years, God has not said anything to anybody in the nation. Ezra and Nehemiah get done their, their ministry back there as they come back from Babylon. They rebuild the temple. There are some prophets who encourage them to build the temple. Stop building your house. Get building God's house. But at that point, when they're done... Malachi finishes writing what he writes. God has not said a word. There's not been another prophet since. So when Zacharias starts speaking the words of God, this is an amazing, monumental moment. And what does he talk about? God's faithfulness. God made a covenant with David. He's now fulfilling it. God made a covenant with Abraham. He's now fulfilling it. And so this covenant that God made with Abraham is the covenant of faith saves us. It is the covenant that you don't get saved by the Mosaic law. It's, it's really kind of interesting that between Ezra and Nehemiah and the time of Jesus, that a group of people would arise, which is when the Pharisees arose, by the way, that a group of people would arise, that there would be a group of people alive today even, who put forward the idea that, you know, if you just keep the Mosaic covenant, you're going to be okay with God. Have you read your Old Testament? Have you actually paid attention to what happens in the Old Testament? They had the covenant of Moses. They, they had that old covenant. How exactly did that work out? Just how effective was that? And by the way, did Abraham get saved by the Mosaic covenant? He didn't even have it. Moses doesn't show up till hundreds of years after Abraham. And Paul will point this out really clearly in Romans. Romans chapter 4, he will say the promises made to Abraham or to his descendants that they would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness which is of faith. Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him for righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham fulfilled the law of Moses, and therefore it was imputed to him for righteousness. Abraham wasn't saved by works. Abraham was saved by faith. This is the covenant that continues on. The Mosaic Covenant, well, the Mosaic Covenant was given for a very specific purpose. It was an important covenant. It took this group of people who were sitting out here in the wilderness, who had all grown up in Egypt, who they weren't Egyptians, but they weren't sure who they were. Who are we? We're all the descendants of Jacob. We've got the 12 tribes, but our national identity, we've been enslaved for so long, we need a new national identity. So God puts them out of the wilderness, gives them the Mosaic Covenant. 
I'm going to tell you how to dress. I'm going to tell you what to eat. I'm going to give you all the laws you need to govern yourselves. I'm going to make you a unique people. That's all good, but this is not salvation. Salvation is to go back and look at Abraham. And what you have to believe is that God is going to send a redeemer. All of these sacrifices, all these bulls and goats and lambs and all that, this is all ultimately pointing to something else. This is not an end in itself. And if you just look at how it all goes, how does it all go? Okay, Moses can't even get that generation out of the wilderness and into the promised land. God ends up killing them all. Joshua finally gets them into the promised land. But by the end of his life, Joshua has to stand up to that group of people and say, look, really, make up your mind. Who are you going to serve? Are you going to serve God? Or are you going to serve the gods of this land? As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. But I mean, you guys really got to make up your mind. And then we just watch. And you watch the nation. Which, by the way, has the covenant of Moses. They've got the tabernacle. They've got the priesthood. They've got everything the Mosaic covenant brings them. They've got it all. They're, they're dressing right and talking right and, and eating right. and they, they got all that. And then what happens? Well, they just go right into sin. And God has to send a deliverer to come get them, a judge who shows up and finally delivers them, and then they go right back into sin. And you just watch that happen over and over and over. I mean, it's just the book of Judges. Finally, Samuel shows up, one righteous guy. But, but the, he shows up because the sons of Eli, the high priest, are just so wicked. But by the time Samuel's done, again, another, there are generations, one generation here and there. But by the time Samuel's done, it's like, yeah, no, we want a king. What do you want a king for? You've got God as your king. No, no, we want to be like all the other nations. That's why you have the covenant of Moses, so that you don't, you're not like all the other nations. No, no, we want... Okay, so they, and how does that go? Saul is a disaster. David does pretty good. Solomon does not quite as good as David. David's at least faithful to the end of his life. He's got that one Bathsheba incident. But other than that, David is faithful to God. Whereas Solomon, he really does not do well. By the end of his life, Solomon's not doing well. And then you just watch him. The ten northern tribes, they're gone. They get hauled off. They're just filled with wickedness. And, and the southern tribes, yeah, there's a couple of kings that show up here and there. You know, Hezekiah, Josiah. And there's some guys, Josiah, that they show up and they kind of reignite the nation. For, but when it's all said and done, you know what? The law of Moses doesn't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't provide them with what they need, which is a new heart. You don't just need the law of Moses. You need a new heart. Well, what do you know? Jeremiah actually talks about that. And so, as Zacharias continues on, you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. That is his son, John the Baptist. You will go before the Lord to prepare his way. John the Baptist is going to prepare the way for Jesus. To give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins. Something in the Mosaic Covenant never provided. There was always another lamb. There was always another day of atonement. There was always another sacrifice. It didn't actually provide forgiveness of sins. You continuously had to keep this thing going. Oh no, we are now going to find sins actually forgiven. Because of the tender mercies of God, which with the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. 
we are going to become partakers of the new covenant. This covenant that Jeremiah laid out for us back there in Jeremiah chapter 31. And in Jeremiah chapter 31, when the new covenant is given, this is what it says, Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, by the way, which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord, but this covenant which I will make with them and the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put their law, my law, in their hearts. I'm going to finally write on their heart what they should be doing. I'm not just going to give it to them out here on tablets of stone. I'm going to finally give them a new heart. You're going to actually serve God because you want to. You're going to be transformed from the inside out. This is the new covenant. And they won't teach again any man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. And from the least of them to the greatest of them, I will actually forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. They will actually be forgiven. This is the covenant. And by the way, this is our covenant. This is us. We, as children of Abraham, which we are, right? Not all the descendants of Abraham are the children of promise. And not all the children of promise are the children of Abraham. Again, back to Romans. Paul lays this out very clearly. Just because you're a descendant of Abraham, Jacob was a descendant of Abraham and God loved him. Esau was also a descendant of Abraham. God didn't love him. So not all the descendants of Abraham are all just automatically in. And in fact, when we as Gentiles keep the spirit of the law, then that is counted to us as the sons of Abraham. Abraham is the father of us all. Why? Because salvation through Abraham, through the message of Abraham, is salvation of faith. We get saved by faith. The covenant that God made with Abraham, he makes with us. Abraham believed in the Messiah and the, and the deliverer who would come. We believe in the Messiah and the deliverer who has come. Same family, same faith. This is the same God. We serve a God whose word will not be broken. That's the God we serve. And so we come to our service to God as believers under the new covenant. And whereas Israel was unable to maintain their relationship with God, they were unable on a daily basis to be the people they were supposed to be and to faithfully serve God. The fact is that we, with the indwelling of the Spirit of God, instead of God being in a tabernacle or in a temple over there somewhere, behind a bunch of doors and walls, and ultimately behind a curtain that even the high priest could only go in once a year. Instead of God being way over there and all kinds of layers between us and God, the very Shekinah glory of God that led them through the wilderness, the very pillar of flame by night, that pillar shows up on the day of Pentecost over the heads of everyone and goes into them. We are the temple of God. That's the new covenant. We have a new heart. We just need to yield to our new heart. We just need to yield to the spirit of God that dwells within us. And if we will do that, 
we can partake of all of these things that come with the new covenant. If you lived under the old covenant, and we should think about this just to appreciate what we have. If you lived under the old covenant and you wanted to actually talk to God, you need to go to the priest. You need to go to the temple or to the tabernacle. You needed to go there and you need to talk to the priest and hope that he would carry your prayer before God. You didn't just get to pray to God yourself. There's no, you don't get to talk to God. And if you want to worship God, you better find the tabernacle. You better go down to the tabernacle. There's a place to worship God. You can't just worship God anywhere. You can't, you can't approach God. You can't just bow your head and start praying to God and expect him to actually hear you. That is not an old covenant view. Under the old covenant, you needed to bring a sacrifice. You needed to have something to offer to the priest so that when you gave him your request, he'd actually remember it and go give it to God on your behalf. And you hope he didn't forget because there were lots of people bringing lots of sacrifices with lots of requests. You couldn't just open up the word of God and read it. The word of God was very precious and there was very few people who had a copy of it. You weren't forgiven. Unless you really had that down theologically, it was very hard to put together that God has fully forgiven our sins. If that's true, then why do I keep bringing these sacrifices? Why, am I, why do I keep bringing these sacrifices? You would have to really have a clear theological understanding, which some people in the Old Testament did, but the average person didn't. They had to really put together, wait, has God actually forgiven our sin? Because if he has, why do we keep offering these sacrifices? We, we, we just keep doing this. Are you sure we're forgiven? But here we are under the new covenant, and we are certain we are forgiven. You, by the way, can go out to lunch today, and you can order whatever you want. Wherever you go, feel free. Have, have a ham sandwich. It's, it's okay. Um, maybe you had bacon this morning for breakfast. That's fine, too. Maybe you're going to go have lobster. I don't know. There's a whole list of foods, though, that under the old covenant, oh, you better not eat any of those. And by the way, uh, those of you who are sitting here with any kind of synthetic fabric or maybe a mixture, you know, of wool and cotton, oh, my, 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 you can't be wearing any of that stuff. I mean, the old covenant put all of this, there was a barrier. Those barriers are all gone. We now enjoy a personal relationship with God. Jesus has opened the way. When Jesus died and the veil ripped in two, the way into the holiness of God is ours. We have this new covenant. And this is what Zacharias is talking about. The forgiveness of sins. It's ours. The way to God is now open. We can see the promises of God. And just as he made promises to them, God has a whole pile of promises in the new covenant that he's made to us. The Spirit of God indwells us. He's not going anywhere. There is no temptation taking you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful and will never allow you to be tested beyond what you're able. All things work together for good to those who love God. Whatever's going on in your life, as, as challenging as it might seem, as difficult as it might seem, God is at work and loves you and has not forgotten you and has not forsaken you. He is simply working in our lives to transform us. And just as we can be sure of all the promises God made 
to Israel and just look at the nation. Thousands of years, God has been faithful. God is going to be faithful to us. God is faithful to us. God is a covenant-keeping God. And our Old Testament is essential so that we can read that and go, this is the God I serve. This is the God, and when he says it, I can stake my eternity on it. And we do. And we should. God has proven himself a faithful, covenant-keeping God. And Zacharias prays this prayer, and of course, we, as the book of Luke continues to unfold, we're going to see all, it's all there. This is exactly how this all goes. This is why Zacharias stands up and makes these prophecies. God is going to fulfill the Davidic covenant, God is going to fulfill the Abrahamic covenant, and God is going to fulfill the new covenant. Because God always fulfills his covenants. Let's pray. Lord, we are so privileged to even be a part of what you are doing in the world. What an amazing thing, Lord, that you gave your word thousands of years ago, and still you are faithful to it. You never lie, not once, not ever. And so may we fully trust you. Give us hearts that genuinely understand that and seek each and every day through the power of your spirit to live a life that reflects that. May we hold your word dear to us. May we read it and study it and live like we believe it. We pray in your dear son's name.